This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello again, everybody. I'm Ron Brownstein, Editorial Director of Atlantic Media, and uh, we are here to talk about technology for social change. And we, to do that, we have a very interesting panel who comes at this from, from very different angles. To my immediate left, Jamie Alexander. Uh, is the co-founder and software architecture lead for the Foundation for Learning Equality. He is also a PhD candidate in cognitive science here at uh, UC San Diego. Uh, to his left, Peggy Johnson, executive vice president and president of global market development for Qualcomm Technologies, uh, where, she spo- where she is responsible for commercializing new business opportunities and developing strategic relationships for the country, uh, for the country, for the company. And to her left, Clark Gibson is a professor of political science and director of the International Studies Program at the University of California, San Diego, right here. So thank you all for, for joining me. Um, we're going to talk about some broad issues and questions about the role of technology in either expanding or constricting uh, opportunity. Um, uh, you know, I think in popular culture, I kind of think of the two poles of this, the two poles of this vision as being 1984 on the one hand and maybe the Apple 1984 ad on the other about whether technology ultimately really does produce more opportunity and autonomy for the individual or less. But you all are working on projects that in different ways try to push the positive side of that needle. And maybe we could start by having each of you talk a little bit about what you're doing. Jamie, why don't you, uh, why don't you start us off? Sure. So I'm working with an awesome group of people with the Foundation for Learning Equality to bring this vision of expanding access to educational materials around the world. So there's been this explosion in the last few years, uh, especially, of online learning resources, ways to go online and learn for free. And for people who have internet access, that's been a huge revolution. People who never had access to higher education or to building up, uh, changing careers, learning new skills, um, now have a way to tap in and learn those skills and, and take a new direction with their lives and empower themselves. And it's changing classrooms. It's allowing teachers to flip their classrooms, to have materials that students can learn from at home, and then the classroom time can be spent, rather than lecturing, engaging with students, uh, doing group-based project activities, um, and, and having the teacher mentor and work more directly with students. So what we've seen, though, is that while this is being made available to more people than ever before, it's limited to the people who have internet, and that's only one-third of the world. So with two-thirds of the world still without access to, to internet, uh, there's a huge swath of humanity that's not able to take advantage of this. So we're trying to find ways to, to bridge those, those gaps and to knock down the barriers to access by building software that can be distributed offline to offline communities to be run directly in the classroom or in an orphanage or in a home um, and to in- allow students, to, to learners, to engage with that content and um, teachers to work directly with them and help students that are struggling and learn at their own pace and um, really make a difference in their, in their lives by, by sharing learning materials more broadly. We'll, we'll come back and talk about some of the details. But Peggy, I guess you come in at the point about the, uh, the two-thirds right. that lacks access. Right. So um, I'm from Qualcomm, and we develop a lot of the technology and the chips that go into a lot of the mobile devices. And right now about 2.2 billion uh, smartphones in the world today. But the gap is closing very fast. Um, in the next four or five years, that's going to double. In a world of about 7 billion people, we'll have about 4.5 billion smartphones. And I think, um, you know, when we stepped back at one point and said, what, 
what is what is the the real meaning of that? What what's going to happen when everybody, literally, in a few more years after that, virtually the entire world is going to have access to low cost mm. smartphones? And what does that mean? And um, we started a, a corporate initiative called Wireless Reach. It's a strategic program. We started several years ago, and we now have about eighty different projects in thirty countries. And we we're studying the effects of mobile and access to content um, on different different traditional industries like health, education, entrepreneurship. And we've had some fascinating results, very positive. Um, we know, you know, it's, it's a little cliche, but knowledge is power. And we know when we reach out into an, a village in Indonesia or a farm in, in, in rural Brazil and bring a little bit of power, great things happen. And um, so it's, it's been a fascinating several years. And that's a lot of what I work on. We'll come back and talk a little bit yeah. more of that in a minute. Clark, what, that's a perfect, perfect segue from Peggy because we use the smartphones where they're not uh, used as much. So uh, my team and I, we work on elections in fragile democracies, and we bring ICT, information and communications technology, equipment, software, to make the process better. So we we both do research, but we have uh, domestic partners, and I give a talk later today at the lab session if you want to come... what we do is we do techniques that can detect uh, electoral fraud, reduce electoral fraud. Um, we get participation from the citizens themselves. It's a new model of election monitoring rather than sending international monitors in, which is actually not proven to do anything. So this is a new way to empower citizens in their own democratic process. So let me ask you, i talk a little bit more about each of these and then kind of bring you all in for a broader discussion. But Clark, let me stick with you for a minute because you alluded to this and there's one sentence in your CV that describes what you do this way. Using domestic researchers, cell phones, custom applications, and random samples of polling stations, Professor Gibson and his team have detected and reduced electoral misconduct in Afghanistan, Uganda, and Kenya. Now, with all due respect... That sounds like a great way to get hurt. Uh, um, uh, talk yeah. about, I mean, in practice, what does this mean? Is someone, who is standing where with what, trying to discourage who from doing what? So that's a great question. And yes, fragile democracies are fragile democracies. So um, we, in, in most of these places, we are partnered with a local polling firm. And so the polling firm has educated staff staff who know the country, and their management knows when and where to send them or not. So we sample with the staff in mind. So we've had no problems there. And the, the polling firm and our team, and just lately in Kenya, this last spring, we also did a project where we also partnered with an NGO doing also domestic monitoring. We're all accredited as election observers by the central government. So we are there to prevent fraud by the virtue of the central government. So we have some safety there. Is, is, aren't there occasions where the central government is the one perpetrating the fraud? In every case, the central government okay. is the perpetrating the fraud. <laughs> but opposition also cheats too. Yeah. Opposition cheats. But the central government, I mean, they have the power, they have the resources. So it's usually, if not the central government per se, uh, it's uh, entrenched incumbents. Yeah, so who is, who is, like, who are the actual, who are you recruiting? I mean, do, how do you find your networks, and, and what do they, what are they looking for? What are they watching? So, this goes into technology again, and I'll give yeah. the talk. You have to come to the talk. Yeah. Uh, 
So we don't do traditional monitoring as in going into the polling station and trying to see fraud. What we do is actually quite simple, and it's designed that way to, be, um, to measure its effectiveness better. We don't know. No one knows for sure if monitoring works. It lends support to a process. Jimmy Carter, I've been on some of his teams, it encourages something, but we don't have any measures if it does anything at all. And in fact, the latest research has election monitors from the outside associated with worse electoral outcomes and more fraud. There's an endogeneity problem there. But anyway, the issue there is, so we we wanted to create something that could be measured. And what we do is we have a polling firm and or NGOs staff. We train them on smartphones, which many of them have never seen. A special application developed here at CalIT2 at UC San Diego to go into the polling station and hand the monitor, no, hand the polling manager a letter. And the letter just says, we're going to take a picture of the tally that you must post publicly at the end of elections. Our people do not stay there all day. They merely deliver the letter it's a slight nudge, and that letter does its job. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, talk, thank you. Uh, Jimmy, t- tell me a little bit more about, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, going to classrooms, making this, this widely available. Now, this is, this is uh, uh, using uh, as your template the Khan Academy uh, YouTube uh, kind of sensation. Talk a little bit about what it's KA Light. Right. What exactly you're trying to, you know, how exactly you differ from the original. Right. You do. So the way K-Lite works is it's a software platform that can be installed on low-cost hardware. So anything from a Raspberry Pi, it's this little $35 computer, um, through to old existing infrastructure, old computer labs, um, so that it can take advantage of any infrastructure that exists rather than relying on a central um, sort of data warehouse um, where there's a, there's a website running. So what we've been seeing in the last uh, while is sort of this move from the internet being what it was originally envisioned as, which is a very distributed ecosystem, towards more centralization. So the cloud is actually, although it seems like it's everywhere, the cloud is actually means data, uh, data centers in very specific locations running high-power hardware um, and serving a distributed area. Um, but what we're trying to move back towards is a more distributed internet where the hubs of content and, and processing are closer to the people actually using them. Um, so that we can take advantage of, say, 3G connections where, for instance, in, uh, across the, the, uh, the east and west cape of South Africa, um, there are many schools that have a single 3G connection shared for the entire school of a few hundred students. And so it's, it's good that they now have some connectivity. They can, they can get things in and out. But that's not enough to have video streaming into to all of the students in that, in that room. So being able to download the content slowly, sync it up over these slow connections or carry it in on USB sticks, and then when the students are accessing it, have all of that access be local to a local server, um, and also be tracking their progress, be, have a student account so they can see what they've been doing, what they're struggling with, and where they're headed. Um, that really empowers them to, um, to take advantage of the same types of interfaces that, that people on the public internet yeah. can so use. So you're, 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 you, know, you described I mean, your, your products are already being used in very divergent kind of situations, in Ghana on the yeah. one hand and in the Idaho Department of Corrections mm-hmm. on the other. Talk a little bit about the different ways this is being used both domestically and internationally, maybe how that differs. Sure, yeah. So in many cases, um, there are different reasons that people don't have internet. In the developing world, sometimes it's just expensive, people are remote, 
um, or the access just hasn't reached them yet. And so, for instance, in India, we have schools that are using little cheap Raspberry Pi Wi-Fi servers uh, with these Akash tablets, cheap Android tablets, um, that are connecting through to it over Wi-Fi in the classroom. Uh, and so there, they're, they're doing sort of a flipped classroom model. The students can engage with the videos and do exercises. The teachers can view the coach reports and see how the students are doing. In, uh, in some cases, Internet is restricted for legal reasons. So in many medium security prisons, um, inmates are not allowed access to internet. Uh, however, there are educational programs operating within prisons who can, which could benefit since they have limited teachers, limited resources. Also, the inmates are at very different levels. Some of them dropped out of school in grade five and are now trying to come back and, and regain some mastery and some confidence to turn their lives around. But uh, many of them are in different levels. So having self-paced learning, having resources where they can work through the content themselves and see what the next steps are and move from there uh, is a very empowering experience because they can, um, they can build confidence again and find a new path in life and realize that the stuff's not actually so hard. They can, they can make a difference there. So, Peggy, let, let's talk a little bit about the, where the bottleneck is. As you know, Jamie has said about two-thirds of the world not being connected to the Internet. Um, what is the principal clog? What will it take to significantly change that number? Is it logistical? Is it financial? Is it governmental? Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of all three, as, as you might imagine. Um, in some cases, uh, it's, it's spectrum. It's just the airwaves that carry the information. And, and that tends to, in some areas of the world, be slow to come onto the market. And so some ways it's, it's, it can constrict it uh, from, from that aspect. Um, we were just talking earlier that you, you kind of need a total solution. So you can't just have um, connectivity access. That's very important. But you also need the content. The teachers need to be trained. There needs to be the leave behind, and particularly in many of the emerging markets, has to be simple enough and um, maintenance has to be easy enough that after you depart, the, it can continue on. Um, so there, if there's a number of things. Um, I would say from a connectivity standpoint, as you know, the, the gap is closing. 3G networks are literally almost everywhere around the world. And then it becomes the devices themselves getting to the right cost point. And those are just being driven down. There's a lot of competition in that space. Um, the fact that you can have in a smartphone, in a low-end smartphone in India today, Pretty much the same thing we had on our desktops just a few years back is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that statistic alone is very amazing. So it, it, it is closing. Um, we'll get there. Right now in this in-between space, KA Light is a great solution until so we reach that. Kind of, you said you had projects, what, in 30 countries, you said? Uh, yeah, over 30 what, 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 what would be what, kind of, what would a project be? Would it be just kind of distributing itself? What, what, what would you be doing? We're doing, a, we're doing several things. Um, in Jordan, we're working with the Jordan Educational Institute, and we've gone into a couple of girls' schools there and, and um, it, equipped them one-to-one with uh, 3G devices. And, uh, you know, sometimes in areas of the world, it is challenging to deliver education to young women. And so they've had all of a sudden access to the Internet. And we've had some, some great results there. Um, we're also doing a mentoring project um, with the Shri Blair Foundation. She has a program where she goes in and mentors young women entrepreneurs. And then after that, we stay connected with them, with young women here and um, women who've started their own businesses to virtually mentor their, you know, nascent businesses just via the um, 3G and, in some cases, 4G 
uh, connectivity that's in place. So, you know, you mentioned competition before, and, uh, you know, I'm sure there are people in the audience who are kind of shaking their head. Of course, a company that makes the chips for mobile phones wants to expand access to the Internet and to, uh, uh, you know, tele- uh, commuting, uh, uh, communications technology. On the other hand, it, th- th- there's, there are different models that people have for how you uh, mass-produce social change. One is kind of... Uh, philanthropic intervention. Another is that somebody can make a profit off of it, that ultimately that there, there's a business logic to kind of reaching the entire world or more people in the world that is more likely to get done than depending upon the goodwill of big institutions to do it. So I'm interested in your thought. You know, it, it, when you said you know, competition is driving down the price, is the way that you're going to get mass penetration of the access to the internet going to fundamentally be philanthropic, or will it be because businesses see a, a market there? Absolutely. You know, business is, is behind that. Um, what, what we found is when we introduced these different programs, for instance, fishermen in India, um, they, we introduced a program where they could, at the end of the day, figure out which port to take their fish to to get the best price. Um, they, they had access to weather information that they had never had before. It completely changed their livelihood from, you know, from ha- previous to having the cell phone in their hand to then having it. All of a sudden, they were making two, three, four times more. And then there's that halo effect. That fisherman's making more. He's spending more money in the village. The village is, um, you know, elbows rise. And so, you know, we, we have found that, in, particularly in a lot of the emerging markets, when you have a small amount of disposable income, people are looking at things like, you know, the basics, food, water, shelter, and then it's a cell phone because they've seen what it does to their neighbors' lives. Interesting. And, and, and that's something that I think sitting here in La Jolla, California, right. it's hard for us to right. imagine. We get a new cell phone, we say, wow, 41 megapixels on that new Nokia camera mm-hmm. phone. And they're saying, you know, it's gonna, this is going to change my life. I might have access to health care where previously, you know, someone might have died. Now they have the access to health care. Get that child to a hospital. They'll have access to education um, and entrepreneurship, as I said. Clark, does, does the, I mean, we're talking here about kind of the way technology is going to empower individuals to kind of assert more control over their own lives, their educations, their livelihood. In your work, do you find, I mean, is there a subtle, what you mentioned before, we were talking about before, it, it is the central government often, often yes. that's perpetrated. Mm-hmm. When, when people are out there independently monitoring, does it change their relationship, their, their acceptance of that kind of uh, political structure? Uh, it, it can cut both ways, but on balance, uh, information is the enemy of the oppressor, usually. And mm-hmm. if you can throw a light on an electoral process or candidates or what parties are doing, it's usually a better, um, it's a more robust democracy. So um, technology is not just working for our small pr- project, but also it's used for get-out-the-vote campaigns. Even in Africa, this is not just the U.S. They're pushing SMS files to their followers. They're uh, texting in complaints about what happened at the polling station. There's a group called Ushahidi where they're a a platform for complaints during electoral processes. So there's a lot of ways technology improves that process, and it doesn't mean that the government can't use it itself. Mm -hmm. They can shut it down. They usually have the main switch and shut it all down. They can send false uh, texts as well. Um, But on balance... People, and you've seen it yourselves on the TV when you have small clips of fraud conducted in Russia or small clips of some kind of tally 
uh, manipulation in another country. These things would not have come to light before. Talk about the broader issue. I mean, it was certainly uh, around the dawn of the Arab Spring. There was an enormous sense of excitement that uh, peer-to-peer communication, social media, text, I mean, texting, Twitter, social, allowed people to organize in a way that you never could before in these closed societies and would fundamentally kind of change the power relationships in them. Two, three years later, you know, the picture doesn't look nearly as sunny. What is your sense ultimately about how much uh, enhanced communication and enhanced communication technology can change kind of the dynamics of power in societies? Well, like I said, it works both ways. So information allows organization. And it allows organization for the good guys and the bad guys. Uh-huh. So you have a demonstration, you can have a counter-demonstration with the same technology setting it up. Uh, but what you don't have uh, on both sides, on the one side, you have people who see things and can act on that information and give that information to others that is less in control of the government. And that's a new, that's a new thing. There's a high newspaper readership in many poor countries and a high radio listening level in these countries. They're thirsty for information. So this is an avenue that they've never had before. It is. The phrase I've used sometimes, you have mass communication now without the mass media. That's right. Exactly which is right. something we had not had previously. So but in, your, in your experience, when you're working in all sorts of different places, uh, is there a, are there clashes with governmental structures over the content that you're sharing? So we haven't seen any uh, any sort of top. In general, the, the governments are fairly supportive. We have concerns ourselves about the content that we're sharing. We don't want it to be a sort of propagation of centralized sort of Western mm-hmm. knowledge, which is why that's, that's, that's sort of a start for us. It's not the direction we're moving. What we're moving towards is, like we've been talking about now, empowering the local communities, giving them tools. So having tools for teachers to generate their own content within a classroom. Mm-hmm. So things that match their local curriculum, their local language, their local culture, and share that, use that within their classroom, and then share it back more broadly, which I think in some cases governments may have more problems with because you're empowering the local populace to to sort of um, self-organize and generate their own content and uh, build new cultural systems around that, which may be more of a threat to the government than uh, some external content being brought in. Peggy, you alluded to this a few minutes ago, but and, and this may be literally the definition of a first world problem uh, as compared to what you were talking about. But, you know, there is by now a great deal of ambivalence in our society about the impact on families and kids and interpersonal relationships of just the enormous explosion of computing and communications uh, technology. We have a terrific project at Atlantic and National Journal called the Heartland Monitor, uh, which we've been doing the last five years. We, We kind of poll average Americans about how they kind of feel about the changing economy. And recently we asked, you know, on balance, is the overall communications revolution that we're living through a good thing or a bad thing for kids? And we kind of gave them the arguments for and against. Slightly more said bad than good. I mean, they, they saw the good in terms of the ability to <clears throat> obtain information from all over the world and get in touch, but they also felt that it was kind of isolating people and, you know, kind of people were kind of retreating into their devices rather than around the world. We're, we're in the midst of this mass experiment. Um, uh, what is your sense about whether... The, are, we, are we more disconnected at the same time that we are more connected? Um, well, through the technology? Yeah, you know, education, obviously, there, there's pushback to introduce mobile <clears throat> devices into the classroom right. because of just that point. The kids are going to be looking at Facebook and other things. But I always say, you know, can any of you get through your day without having a mobile device and just answering any question you have? You know, you can quickly Google it and, and get an answer. And we shouldn't keep that from our kids. That is their new encyclopedia. 
Um, but it does need to be filtered in, in some ways. And I think that is where um, I, I think there is the, a bit of struggle because there's so much information that's coming at you all the time in so many different formats. And one of the things we've been um, looking at is something we call the digital sixth sense. Your phone is, getting, is smart and it's getting smarter. It has a lot more sensors on it. It knows where you're at. It knows if you're at home or work or school. And with various sensors on the phones, we believe there's a way to filter out some of that information. So, for instance, as the child crosses into the classroom, there may be a set of information that they have access to, um, but you can block other things. And I think as we, you know, as we put more and more sensors into the phones, we can create an environment that's safe in the classroom, that's useful in the classroom, and um, that, it, you know, we will say at the end of the day, it made those kids more productive. Jamie, this is, this, I was going to ask you, this is a little bit out of your direct, what you're doing directly, but just up the road in L.A., we are going through one of the biggest experiments about using technology in the classroom, spending hundreds of millions of dollars to put an iPad in the hands of every K-12 uh, student, what do you think? And I, I know several of the candidates who ran for mayor in New York ran on. I, I promised to do that as well. There, what do you make of that? What is uh, is that ultimately going to expand? Kind of, you know, what what students can be exposed to, or is it going to kind of atomize the classroom in the end? I think one of the critical things there is because we're all about equitable access. Is that many of these kids are going to have that at home already? Um, I think the big thing is that we're now we get this big digital divide, even in the developed world, where many kids at home won't have access to those sorts of resources. Um, and so I think proactively mm-hmm. trying to get it to the students that wouldn't otherwise have access like is that. a very important thing, just to balance that out a bit. And Clark, that was something I wanted to ask you, kind of in your. Put on your domestic hat here, and kind of your. I mean, one of the questions about if we go back to our original, what the title is here: technology for social change. One of the questions is whether, as we develop more powerful tools, they benefit the people who are most equipped to take advantage of them in the first place, and actually serve not to expand opportunity but to widen inequality. I mean, you could, you know, you could argue that since the beginning of the computing age, by any measure, inequality in our society, economic inequality, is wider. So is the effect of everything we're talking about more to expand opportunity or to further concentrate it among the people who are best positioned to take advantage of what's emerging? It's a nice, broad question. Um, I think it's context-driven. So if you have uh, a monopoly of information in a country, say the countries that I work in, um, uh, more information is, is better. In a country that has alternative information sources already, uh, the, the ones who have may be able to exploit that more than the ones who have not, clearly. And uh, it's also about um, incentive. So the incentive of um, the, those who have less may be more powerful in ways than the incentive of those who have more. Or those who have more aren't on the cutting edge. They're not pushed, they're not pushed to... Um, uh, they're not pushed in the same way to um, keep their position in the political world as opposed to people who want to change the political world. They're going to be pushing the edges of t- technology and elections but, but in the and econo- democracy. But in the economic sphere, what you're talking about is saying that, you know, basically as these new tools develop, you know, you're more like if you have someone who's an upper middle class kid who's both of whose parents went to college, they're much more likely to have, you know, to be swiping at, as soon as their fingers can move. Uh, and, that, and that in effect, uh, you know, you see gaps widen. 
uh, as, as the tools emerge, even though the technology itself, in theory, could be used to narrow the gaps. And, and ironically, the more great content that we get and the more valuable the Internet becomes, um, the more we're advantaging the people that already have it. And so that's why we're, we're trying to counterbalance that. First of all, take advantage of that, but also counterbalance that by making it accessible uh, targeted to the people who otherwise wouldn't mm -hmm. have access. And how big an issue at this point, I mean, is the digital divide in the U.S.? I mean, there's almost ubiquitous access to the Internet. There's not ubiquitous access to broadband. There's different ways people use things. What is your sense on kind of this broad question I'm asking, whether these technologies are expanding opportunity or kind of widening inequality? Well, it's interesting. Uh, talking about the, what happened up in L.A., um, those, those devices were um, Wi-Fi only, and what they found is a lot of kids don't have broadband at home, and so now they're going back and buying the Wi-Fi connectivity so they can have 724 connectivity and have access to information and access to their peers and their teachers um, outside of the classroom, which they found is that's a very important piece of it for kids who don't have that access to broadband. So getting access to broadband, I think, is is the most essential thing that we can do, um, you know, not only to our inner city kids, to rural areas. There's, it's challenging to do that, particularly in a geography like the United States, to have broadband access everywhere. But that is the task at hand. And, and President Obama, they, they are trying to update the E-rate through the FCC Correct. to produce a big pot of money to move, all the, move the nation's schools into broadband. I mean, they did the first round of connectivity. What you were describing is basically describes most American schools today, you know, just having you know, one connection in the library. And they're, and they're now trying to raise the money to have a much more robust school uh, connectivity where kids could be in a classroom with uh, Wi-Fi on their, on their devices. So, so even in San Diego, um, we're working with High Tech High. Um, to, so because the students come from a wide variety of socioeconomic statuses, uh, we're trying to find ways to um, get the kids who don't have access at home. So many of those kids don't have Internet at home. And so hopefully eventually we can get Internet to them at home. Mm -hmm. um, in the meantime, what we're doing is sending them home. They might have computers at home, sending them home with a USB stick that they can plug in, engage with content, um, do their exercises, bring it back mm -hmm. in, plug it into the computer in the classroom, and it'll upload that usage data back up to the Internet so that they can be working on par with the other students who are engaging with the Khan Academy materials. You know, the other big area that, you know, so the one anxiety about the kind of the digital world we live in is kind of kids and atomization or isolation. The other is privacy, obviously. And we've had an incredible year with the NSA revelations and uh, the entire Snowden uh, saga. Uh, and, and, and it's caused people to kind of ask about not only what government knows, but what, what the private sector knows, the price we're paying in effect for all of these free uh, you know, services that we get on, online. Um, where, Peggy, where do you think we are about finding the balance between kind of service and privacy? Is this, is this kind of a settled or is this very much in flux in terms of what we're going to be comfortable with as a society? You know, it's definitely in flux. And I think there, there is that trade-off. The, the more information I, I uh, send out, maybe the data that comes back to me is more filtered and yeah. targeted for me. But then what do I give up from a sense of privacy? And I, I, going back to that digital sixth sense we've been working on, um, an application that, as it as it filters this data about you, um, it keeps it on your handset, and then I decide I decide if I want to let that out or not. So, for instance, it um, it might know that um, you know because I let it know that I'm a runner, and if I'm going through the mall, um, stores can be promoting out, and my phone can be filtering, saying, "Is there anything here for runners?" and I can bring in a targeted ad because I'll accept that. Uh, but I don't want all that other stuff, and I actually don't want the mall to even know that I'm there. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
you know, so there's, there's all sorts of different levels of privacy, but I, I would find a lot of value in that example. Um, but I want to have control of my data. And I think that's what the Snowden case is, is sort of teaching all of us. Mm. Give us more of the control. If I want to let more out, I can. But if I want to keep it locked down, I can do that as well. Clark, you, we should probably see more severe versions of this in some of the countries you work in about, you know, as we have more penetration of smart devices, it does allow governments. All, as, as you said, it's a two-way street. Yeah. Governments may find it easier to keep track of what people are yeah, doing. They're starting. What are the issues that are happening there? Yeah, they're starting. Uh, um, internet connections are often controlled by the government in these in these countries. They can turn them on or off, uh, depending on their whim. They're behind on uh, at this point. They're behind on detecting things that are in social media. They don't have necessarily the expertise or the core to to do it to a great extent. Now in China, that's completely different. In fact, one of my colleagues here at UCSD looks at China and the web, and they're constantly monitoring every chat room wow. possible for signs of where so there might be a group organizing for a protest or signs of where an issue might be talking about the central party constantly. Thousands quick, of people. Real quickly, there, is, that, is that people or is that, or is that, you know, is that automated? I don't, they, that I don't know. But they have thousands. I know that we have thousands of workers constantly who just do this. who just do this for the government. So... Governments can do this with enough advanced technology and um, an understanding of the web. Uh, generally, right now, in the poorer countries and fragile democracies, they'll usually just hit the switch. They'll hit the on or off switch. That's the crude way to stop the information flow. Because you are leaving more tracks, vastly more tracks than yes, any generation were. before. Right. right? But that's, the private sector is uh, more powerful in the internet and information communication world in these countries than the governments. All of this has been driving with the private sector. The millionaires in Africa are all the first people who provided cell service. Mm. Those are the movers and shakers. The private side of the world has taken off. Governments are counting to catch up. Interesting. Um, all right, let's bring in the audience for some questions if, uh, if we have a whole bunch. Um, how about back that way to start? Good morning, Douglas Mustapik. In regards to keeping mobile devices from uh, kids or whether or not that's a good idea and the schools, how will technology change the landscape of education? And that being said, how would that adjust the curriculum? In essence, looking at, for instance, nowadays kids have no, really no idea how to do a tip at a table because why? We have an app for that. And so just using that small example, is that allowing us to expand further because we don't have to focus as much on all the basics? Or is that just bringing us away from what we're really trying? Good question. Thank you. So I definitely hear where you're coming from with um, these technologies sort of replacing or augmenting our skills in ways that we become dependent on them. Um, I think at the same time, the, the materials that we can share through these to augment education itself. So in Khan Academy, there are exercises, I believe, or at least we were talking about this when I was working at Khan Academy last summer on making exercises for learning how to calculate tips. Um, so, so I think it can go both ways there. I, I think having these tools augmenting our abilities, I don't see as necessarily a bad thing. If we become dependent on them too much, that, that can be problematic. But I think empowering ourselves, moving towards um, having more, more abilities based on integrating with these technologies, I, I'm sort of lean to be being that. that and, being okay. and just clear, I mean, we, we could have said the same thing about the calculator and long division, right? We lose and the we ability do. to do yeah. long division and multiplication yeah. because of the calculator. But, but I think the question, the, one part of the question I was really interested mm -hmm. in, does, if in effect those baseline skills are handled by the technology, does it in fact give you the freedom through education mm -hmm. to do other, to go further in other directions that maybe you couldn't have done before because you had to do those 
you had to, you had to meet that, that minimum standard. Yeah, very much so. Very so, much so. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. We, I think we uh, have uh, over here. Should I get some new faces? Hi, I'm Ken Rind. Uh, I'm a venture capitalist. Some years back, the UN asked me to give a talk uh, on encouraging venture capital to enhance economic development. And I had people in the audience from various countries who said economic development is bad because it increases the gap between the rich and the poor. I find that bizarre. Do you think that's true? Do I, I asked the moderator first. Do I think that's true? Do I think economic development... Uh, well, uh, in, in, let's see. I, I actually don't know, I don't know the stat. I don't know the stats. I, I think in many countries... More economic development increases the gap between rich and poor as a society gets richer, but it would be okay. I mean, the, the history, the history of, the, I mean, certainly in the U.S. and U.S. politics, the history is that people are not that concerned about inequality if they believe there's upward mobility. When they become deeply unhappy about inequality is when they believe there is not upward mobility. And today, you know, uh, you have a better chance of going from the bottom fifth to the top fifth in a society in Europe than you do in the U.S. And I think that is that the concern about inequality is at its root fundamentally about upward mobility. So I would say, in your example, if, if you're going to bring economic development to a country in a way that allows somebody to start at the bottom and move to the top, I think that would be broadly accepted. It's when it seems to be uh, kind of reinforcing privilege that it becomes, becomes more problematic. What? Do you think economic development is bad? No. But did, did, you, did, did you listen to anything I just said? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm saying. I'm asking a question. My, my question. What my answer was that economic, uh, economic development is seen as a. I think is is a net positive for a society, but is seen as more positive when it contributes to upward mobility and not simply stratification and widening inequality. That's exactly the way I see it too. Yeah. Hey, Bob Engler. Um, I heard a lot about censorship and the government's hand on the switch. It, is technology in the future where we, I don't exactly know who we are, can get around <laughs> and get information to people that can't be censored and the switch can't be turned off? Well, that's... Right, to... so that's something we're very excited about. I mean, this is getting back to what I was talking about, the Internet becoming centralized versus the Internet remaining or moving back in the direction of being distributed. So if we can have ad hoc networks have sort of mesh networks or peer-to-peer networks where communities can exchange content directly and have direct connections to each other rather than going through some central hub. And if they can control their own infrastructure, if we can use this explosion in low-cost hardware to allow communities to develop their own infrastructure and directly connect to each other and share through those own, their own networks, um, then it can be a very powerful... So with these mesh-type mesh networks, for instance, you, um, they could operate independently. Um, if, the, if the line gets cut, um, they could try and any, any bridge back onto the broader network would allow everybody on that internal mesh network to bridge back out as well. So whether somebody brings in a satellite connection or has a 3G connection or pulls in a line or gets a long-distance um, sort of antenna pointed at another country that has some connectivity with somebody else pointing an antenna, then it allows you to bridge back out. But the point is... Um, having the majority of that infrastructure and the core of that infrastructure be controlled in a distributed fashion as possible. Thank you. Yeah, I would, I would just add that, um, you know, our cell phones are, are bristling with different kinds of radios. There's Bluetooth, Bluetooth LE, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi Direct. So you can actually set these up very quickly now, these mesh-type networks. And so it, not only for things like public safety, um, you know, where maybe the cell tower goes down or there's power, there's a bit of power loss, 
the, the devices can still work with each other. We have, it's not deployed yet, but that's coming because there are enough radios in there for devices to be able to talk. And then what you can do in your case is you can then one device can be hooked back in at some point, physically hooked back in. But having in. said that, I mean, I think one thing that really has surprised people about all the revelations we've seen over the last year was that there are so many centralized switching points where it was possible for you know a government entity to just basically vacuum everything up right there you didn't you didn't have to be on everybody's cell phone you there were you know these kind of centralized uh, nodes that you could go to to get what you needed yeah and and, and so the system ultimately does have a lot of centralization isn't it and it does it not at this point it, it does yeah, I, yeah, i'm point, i'm assuming yeah. as a non uh technology expert that um countries governments will have a harder and harder time pulling the switch mm-hmm. i just think that's going to mm-hmm. happen However, being a political scientist, which is like a professional cynic, I also know that the private sector driving the cell phone network in Africa has to negotiate with the Mm. government to build the tower. So the government still has a tremendous amount of control over the flow of information, over media, over the cell network. And I was told to me in Afghanistan that in the South, I was actually an election observer for one of the elections in Helmand province, where the Taliban were strong, that they had made a deal with the central government that they wouldn't tear down the cell towers as long as they turned the cell towers off at night for some reason so they couldn't be detected or something. So, and the government mm. said, fine, because they didn't want their infrastructure torn down. So it's, um, I put the break on technology as the answer to everything because um, it does come down to politics in many of these situations. Yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, over there? Uh, behind you, behind you. And then maybe over here and then over here. My name is Sue Rutledge. Um, I've just retired from the World Bank, and I wanted to ask you a question about development. Uh, We find that in many developing countries that the financial institutions are not entirely reliable. In Russia, for example, I know some very senior officials with the private sector who say they will not leave money overnight in the in the state Mm. bank because it will that information of the deposit will be relayed to the mafia overnight. And so they leave money only during the day and not overnight. My question to you is whether you see technology as being a way of bypassing that system of all the, particularly for money transfer systems. So that's happening yeah. now already. Um, there's something called M-Pesa in Africa right. um, where people are, are uh, transferring money via their cell phones uh, just using simple text messages. Um, and that's been amazing for the unbanked of the world. All of a sudden, they have a bank. It's safe. They can, they can transfer in between. And it's happening, actually, it started there, but it's happening in many of the emerging markets, Philippines, elsewhere around the world. Yeah. It's spreading quite a bit, right? Yeah, Very mobile quickly. banking is big. Yeah. Mobile banking is really big. Um, in fact, my understanding is that M-Pesa has a larger capital base than you know, any other real bank on the continent. Wow. I think we have one woman over here, did we? Yeah, so you're going to get the last question. We have the microphone. There it is. Vivian Olmos, and my question is for Peggy. So wireless reach, I'm interested in knowing if the projects are generated internally or do groups approach Qualcomm? And is there an expectation that the wireless reach division does not generate a profit um, and is subsidized by wireless others? other projects? So the, the program itself is strategic to Qualcomm. So we're, I'm head of new markets, and we're looking at how wireless technologies can, can 
you know, accelerate some of these new markets. Um, as to your first question, I would say we, we get ideas from all over. And so there's a, if you go online, you, you see there's a way that you can submit ideas into the program and they, uh, you know, they'll contact you about, you know, the feasibility and that sort of thing. All right. I think that's it. I'm sorry. We, they're, they're giving us the hook. Thank you all for joining me and thanking this terrific panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.